Heavy Hops is a Scorched Tundra production. You can access all our episodes with detailed show notes and information about upcoming events by visiting scorchedtundra.com slash heavy hops. Be sure to follow us on your preferred social media platform. Subscribe, leave us a rating or review on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or wherever you access podcasts. Thanks for supporting us and enjoy the show. Easily 70, 80% of the people, 125 people maybe in a building, they're listening to a sound level at something way greater than they ever should be. And they did not know that. And they, when they see that on a decibel meter, it brings awareness to the fact that they could have a hearing loss. Welcome to Heavy Hops. My name's Alexi. My name's Sam. With summer festivals and club concerts on the horizon, we wanted to explore the connections between mental, physical, and hearing health. No better guest to join us than Chicago-based audiologist, Dr. Michael Santucci, and otolaryngologist, Dr. Howard Kotler, an ear, nose, and throat specialist. As the world's only audiologist-run earphone manufacturer, Dr. Santucci's firm, Sensophonics, attracts musicians from all over the world seeking hearing protection. Using the recent film Sound of Metal as our starting point, we discuss how hearing injury and loss can occur, the role stigmatization plays in exacerbating hearing damage, and what constitutes effective hearing conservation. Dr. Santucci also touches on his work with the World Health Organization on decibel limits in venues and hearing loss prevention in music. Hearing injury can occur through repeated exposure in a variety of loud environments, and this conversation encourages holistic thinking on the topic. Let's dive and get heavy. Welcome to Heavy Hops, uh, Dr. Howard Kotler and Dr. Michael Santucci. Thank you so much for joining us today. Nice to be here. Good to be here. It's nice to see all you. Thank you. So let's let's begin with some uh, introductions. Uh, I would like for both of you to sort of introduce yourselves to our audience so that they can get familiar with uh, who you are and what you study uh, and familiar with your voices as well. So why don't we start with... Uh, with you, Dr. Michael Santucci. Sure. Everybody, I'm Dr. Michael Santucci. I'm a doctor of audiology, and uh, I have been working as an audiologist with musicians since uh, 1985 and um, have a clinic where I see close to 1,500 musicians a year. I have for almost 40 years and uh, developed products. My first in-ear monitor was in 1992, by the, worn by the Grateful Dead. And we were the beta testers for musicians' earplugs back in 1989. So I've got a long history of the development of products to help protect hearing and a lot of uh, hearing loss prevention strategies through many, many years of working with that. Uh, my name is uh, Dr. Howard Kotler. I am an, technically an otolaryngologist, head and neck surgeon, which translates into an ear, nose, and throat uh, head and neck surgery specialist. I've been practicing now in Chicago since 1994. I did my training here and a year abroad in Europe. And although we uh, practice and our practice encompasses all disorders of the ears, nose, and throat, um, I have a special interest in hearing loss. Um, as well as the other issues that we deal with um, and have had great um, 
success and great interaction with Dr. Michael Santucci, who being one of the forerunners here um, internationally based in the city of Chicago, um, and have been able to help my patients and his patients as well through our efforts in hearing conservation. So it's a great uh, pleasure to be here today to get this message out to all of your listeners. And it's great to have this collaboration. The movie, the recent film Sound of Metal uh, brought uh, the sort of, brought a lot of attention uh, to the role that uh, that live performance and consistent exposure to loud music can play in hearing loss. Uh, of course, there's other factors that go into hearing loss that we're going to talk about. Um, but I want to kind of use this film as a sort of uh, walkway through which we can look at uh, hearing loss. So let's kind of begin with uh, Riz Ahmed's character, Ruben, whose hearing becomes compromised as a result of constant touring, perhaps inconsistent use of hearing protection, and maybe viral issues. Uh, let's begin with you, uh, Michael. Uh, you work with musicians. Do the issues that Ruben experiences in the film uh, reflect what you see in patients? You know, his his hearing loss, to be, to be truthful here, his hearing loss is probably more than you're going to see with somebody who's just trashed their ears from loud sound. Um, because I think that you can't totally destroy your hearing at all frequencies from loud music. You could be just as debilitated and if you notice the parts of the, the show where he was losing his hearing and everything became very muffled, that's what people experience. And that sort of thing really does affect both musically and socially your playing abilities. I think the bigger part of the, the, the movie that I my takeaway was it's music is really emotional. And for a musician, even more so, right? It's an emotional thing. <laughs> whether it's angry playing and you know a lot of metal is anger but it's like a message and there's emotion behind it all and it's a very emotional thing hearing and when you lose it <clears throat> along with losing the emotion of hearing you're also losing your your love of life of playing music and then your girlfriend who is also connected to this thing his whole life just went upside down because of hearing loss and i think that's the message is how important our hearing is that people don't realize and take it for granted. Uh, I thought the movie really brought out the importance emotionally of hearing, not just communication-wise and musically, which are you, know, you could tell his whole career was ruined, right? He couldn't play drums anymore and he couldn't hear what people say, said, but the emotion behind that was also a big part of the film. And, and I think it hopefully speaks to, to those that are trash in their ears now and might end up in somewhat similar situations in the future. And for uh, for you, Howard, uh, do you feel the same way? And do you what other sorts of viral issues may come in play when it comes to uh, hearing loss uh, and sound exposure? Yes, um, I do. I, I let me just backtrack and say that you know a lot of sudden sensory neural or sudden nerve uh, deafness, hearing loss, is really poorly characterized. I mean, we do have a large body of evidence that shows that there may be a viral cause, but there also may be an incited or developed autoimmune cause for hearing. Um, and I do have patients who will have a concurrent viral upper respiratory tract infection. Certainly we've seen with the COVID pandemic, a whole variety of all I can say is weird 
um, the types of hearing loss that came and went or now have been permanent. So I do think that there is a viral etiology or viral cause for a lot of nerve-related hearing loss. The, the real problem is how do you treat that? You know, and uh, again, it gets back to that emotional issue of reassuring the person who's been affected um, that this is really going to have an impact in their life, um, whether they're a musician or not, or a public speaker or not, or a public performer. Um, we don't really recognize the value or the impact of, of not being able to communicate with another person uh, when you can't hear. We recognize sight impairment, certainly, um, but we really don't acknowledge value um, or the impact or the importance of hearing loss. And so, you know, I think Michael and I both deal with a lot of them as a uh, viral cause, but the truth is, really probably don't exactly know, but there's not a whole lot you can do about it. Would you say, Howard, that those causes, the viral causes are rare? I mean, this isn't a common thing that happens to people. It's it's fairly rare. It does happen. We see it because you're an ear doctor. You're seeing it probably more than any other doctor, but is in the general population, you know, it's got to be pretty rare. I would say it's pretty rare, yes. Yeah. You know, the auditory symptoms that bring people to my clinic, hearing loss for musicians, I, I it's, it's unbelievable to say this, but that has never been the motivator. They show up here because of tinnitus. And by the way, I never call it itis because itis in medicine means inflammation and infection. And itis is a Greek word that it means you have noise in your head. It's not a disease. It's just a, a symptom. But that draws people here. They get a ringing that just isn't going away anymore. And now they're starting to get scared that they've injured themselves. That's a big one. Uh, also, some people have done enough injury to the nerve cells in their inner ear that loud sounds grow abnormally fast. In other words, there are certain loud sounds that are piercingly painful because the nerve cells don't have a mind control anymore. Basically, they've been ruined to, so things sound very quiet or very loud and there's not a very good in between. Uh, we also have people that have distortions at certain notes will make their ears distort. And of course, there's something called diplocusis, which is at a really poor ability to, to find pitch, which ruins careers. And those are the things that really end people's careers. Of course, like in the movie, you know, obviously sudden hearing loss is a real killer. But these other injuries just eventually take their toll and musicians a lot of times hang it up or reduce their amount of playing or play with all the pain and injury that they're going through. And in the clinic here, you hear all those horrible stories of the emotions of not being able to to hear their music the way they used to. It's 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 a it's a tough thing, but those other issues really seem to what bring people in here, not so much uh, the hearing loss itself. And uh, for you, Howard, you experienced tinnitus yourself. Can you describe uh, when that began and what you experience when you do experience tinnitus? Yes. Um, as I sit here right now, um, I'm hearing the sound of a whistling radiator in both ears. And this is something that um, never leaves me. I wake up with it. I go to sleep with it. it. It's with me all day long. I do all I can to increase the volume of whatever sound system I have to try to overcome it. 
doing further damage to my hearing, of course. I try not to do that, but um, I probably first noticed this about 20 years ago. I'm now 65, so in my mid to late 40s, I, you know, would come out of a show, a, a Chicago show, typical railroad car, bar, music venue, and have ringing like probably a lot of people do, and it would be gone by the next morning, and then began to notice that that ringing persisted um, beyond two or three days, and then actually was there permanently. And um, following that, um, I then sought <laughs> the evaluation by an audiologist. Um, it's kind of an interesting, <laughs> I'm an ear, nose, and throat doctor, and I never thought I needed to see an audiologist with all my noise exposure since the age of 13, going to shows and seeing Hendrix, Janis Joplin, um, Zeppelin, all these you know classic rock bands. Um, but I did, and I needed to, and when I finally did and had an audiogram, a hearing test done, was able to see objectively the extent of my hearing loss. And um, it's really debilitating. I um, take it as a, a positive in that I'm able to understand better than physicians that don't have tinnitus um, what their patients are undergoing. And, and I have probably at least two or three patients a day that come in and their primary complaint, as uh, uh, Michael said, is tinnitus and they want the magic medicine to make it go away. They've tried everything on the internet. They've bought every potion you can imagine. They've tried every tinnitus masking device that they've paid for, um, but they filled their bedroom full of that they're not able to ever now get rid of that tinnitus. And I can at least tell them I have the same thing. I have the same sound, it never leaves me. It masks so much of the high-end frequencies that I can't hear now. Um, I have to do all I can when I listen to music and um, it will be there for the rest of my life as far as I know. So uh, yeah, it's a big problem. And it's what brings a lot of people into my office, not the complaint of hearing loss, just like Michael said. I guess we can kind of continue on that train and talk about the danger of the stigmatization of uh, hearing loss in the music industry when you look at it from like a machismo culture kind of way, especially when you talk about rock and metal, there's almost this badge of honor that's given to people who have lost their hearing. I remember being involved in the punk and metal scene and, and no one wore ear protection when I was younger. And it wasn't until I got out here and started noticing little ringings after shows that I started taking care of myself. but you don't see people going to metal shows wearing hearing protection because it's, it's almost like you're, you're, it's like a dishonored kind of like a dishonorable badge in a way. Um, can we kind of talk about why that's such a dangerous stigmatization in the music industry? I can tell you that when I first started selling earplugs and we're talking about the late eighties, early nineties, when nobody was presenting such a thing, it was a joke. I mean, the big thing was, oh, my gosh, earplugs for musicians. Now I've heard of everything. And they'd laugh and, uh, you know, they do the huh, what, and all those stupid things that make them sound funny. And then, they'd, like you said, badge of honor. Yeah, I've got hearing loss and ringing. I've been on the road for 20 years. And I'm like, don't brag about injuring yourself for permanently. And so... I started changing language. I think a lot of the language in audiology wraps around things that really don't speak to people. So they call it hearing damage. And I think that's an impersonal thing. It's injury. 
your car gets damaged, you get injured. So somebody comes into my clinic and they'll say, I think I have some hearing damage. And I say, how often are you injuring yourself? And they say, what? I go, how often do you injure your ears? And then you could just see the light turn on because they're like, I'm injuring my money makers. That's not smart. So, and I think your generation compared to ours and our generation, I'd go backstage back in the eighties. And I mean, there is stuff going on backstage that does not go on anymore. It's become more corporatized. And I think people your age, the younger people, X, Gen and Y and all those, you're more interested in health, health foods. You want to eat the right stuff. Everywhere is, everybody wears sunblock. They want bottled water. So there is a health thing. Back in our day, that was not the issue. We were People were experimenting with drugs and doing all kinds of fun stuff. And the health wasn't really the biggest thing, although we had vegetarians and all that stuff. But I think that's... Uh, that's one of the things that you'll see metamorphosized now because I've done work with Music Cares, which is the the uh, the non-for-profit branch of the Grammy Foundation, right? The Grammy Awards, and they actually pay me to go and give out musicians earplugs at Lollapalooza and Riot Fest. I'm sitting backstage in Artist Village, where they used to laugh about earplugs. Now they're waiting in line literally waiting in line and get turned away every day. Uh, Howard was with me at Riot Fest a couple of years ago. And I mean, you know, we ran through at least 40 or 50 people in four hours and they're lined and they, is all right, can we get in? No, it's too late. They've, they're done. They hit their quota for the day. So there's, there's an interest. The attitude is changing and it's not just all bands. The, you know, the funny thing about, the audience going there thinking it's macho not to wear anything. The bands are all wearing stuff. I mean, there's very few bands out there, including metal bands or death metal or speed metal. They want to wear put, put something in their ears because they're in it every day. So it really makes it difficult. It's the time of exposure, too. And I think that people should think about hearing protection like they think about skin protection. When you put sunblock on, what are the factors for skin protection? How hot is it? How long are you in it, right? It's not just how hot it is, how many hours you're going to be out in it. And of course, what's your skin type? We can look at somebody and decide who's more susceptible. Hearing is the same. How loud is this show, but how long is it? So if you're going to one show and you're going to see my bloody Valentine, they claim to be the loudest band and they even pass out earplugs to their crowd, believe it or not. But you go to see that and it's an hour show may not be as bad as going to an Ozfest with 10 hours of bands playing at a lower level, right? So it's it's about both those things. Think of the time of duration. There's also an ear type, but the problem is we can't pre predetermine who that is. So 25% of ears lose hearing a lot faster than 75% of people, uh, just like sun. There's different degrees depending, and we just haven't found that magic thing. So we put you all in the pink skin, red hair category for your hearing, so to speak, and maybe overprotect some people. But, but uh, yeah, think about the time and the exposure level. And there's easy ways to find level, by the way, that are good apps. There's a million on the phones out there. One is called NIOSH, N-I-O-S-H. It's the National Institute of Occupation Safety and Health. These are the brilliant people that actually study, this isn't OSHA, these are the people that tell OSHA what to do. And they have a free app 
that you can download and it will give you the dB level that you're listening to and it'll tell you the dosage that you're allowed to have and whether you've exceeded it. Really easy way to tell with an accurate app. So one of the one of the things that I think about as someone who uh, organizes uh, music events in other countries is decibel limits and public policy around uh, around decibel limits. Exactly and, right. yeah. yeah, and the uh, public health concerns, right? And so, um, can you tell us, uh, give us a little bit of a background on uh, on some of like uh, what are good decibel limits? Is like a hundred decibel uh, a level of a hundred dB an appropriate level, which is something that no. you see in European Union not. countries? Yeah. So, so, so they, in the United States, let's start with the U S there is no regulation for sound levels for the audience at concerts or for the band members. There are annoyance levels. If you have an outdoor shed venue, it's gotta be less than 55 DB inside somebody's house that's near there. Right. So they're trying to protect the community from noise pollution, but not protecting anybody's hearing just pollution wise. That's it for the U S uh, the world health organization, which I'm a core member of. They, they started uh, in 2015 calling in experts and also a bunch of manufacturers like Apple and Bose and Samsung and all these phone manufacturers, Sony, everybody was there and, and they're saying that everybody's losing their hearing with your devices and there's no warning or an improper warning. And we want to show you how to warn people when they're listening too loud. And everybody agreed. Apple is already, if you've got an iOS device, you'll notice that it'll tell you when things are too loud in a room with an Apple 4 watch, or it'll tell you how loud your earphones are and whether you're listening too loud if they're Apple earphones. So, so there are ways to go out there now. We're going after the venues. We want to see how we can limit things at venues. And in Europe, as you mentioned, there are regulations per country that it's not a standard. It's a regulation where we're actually forcing people to listen at a certain level. Uh, there's different levels and time limits for different countries in Europe. Not all of them have the same, uh, but they do all seem to pick 100 dB generally as the listening level that you're not supposed to go over. Now, if you listen to their own safety regulations, 100 dB is safe for 15 minutes. So where is the safety there? I don't see it, right? So this is just a way, I think, personally, talking to some associates that are in engineers in Europe, they think it's got to do with the same kind of annoyance hazard. The people around that have these expensive houses that built around the big festivals now don't want to hear that music bleeding into their house. So let's make the concert 100 dB. And that way, everybody's not going to hear it too loud. It's not protecting the crowd, obviously, under their own rules. Now, the OSHA rule, by the way, so let's talk about that. The international standard is the same as the NIOSH, the National Institute of Occupational Safety and Health Standard. There's two standards in the United States. One is OSHA, one is NIOSH. OSHA said in 1970, for industry, when it first started, it says that workers working 40 hours a week at 90 dB, eight hours a day, need to get hearing protection. And every time it goes up five dB, you have to cut your exposure time in half. So at 95, you're only safe for four hours. 
100 dB two hours, 105 an hour, 110 dB 30 minutes, right? And so they, after a number of years, started doing the, uh, uh, work on looking at this stuff and, and doing data analysis and found that some people, about 25%, were still losing some hearing. So they changed the standard to start at 85 dB instead of 90 as a low fence. And instead of making it a 5 dB exchange rate, they turned it into a 3, which is the energy, right? 3 dB is twice as intense. So now they're saying that, as OSHA says, 100 safe for two hours. The international standard and the NIOSH standard here in the U.S. say 100 is safe for 15 minutes. So, you know, if you had a, the OSHA standard, maybe that 100 would make sense because then you do have 100 dB and you got a two-hour show and you might be okay. But the 100 dB for the international standard, the way they, they list things, it isn't sufficient. So I have issues with that. Uh, being on the World Health Organization, it's a public health policy group. So I'm always kind of the guy speaking out against public policy health, even though they, they like having me on there. I think I'm the instigator to bring the other side of things. Uh, they were already pounding their shoes on the table to saying, you know, it's time to limit concert levels and these kids are listening too loud. And I say to them, where are you measuring from? And in the front, I go, well, there's something called line array speakers and they don't have very much volume in the front at all. Like they have to put near field monitors for the people in the front rows because of the way they're shaped. Oh, well then in the back, I said, well, then you get into a big room with other kind of boxes. So you have to decide what kind of PA is it? Where are you measuring from? What's the size of the room? What if it's a, if it's a dance club, an EDM club, that's long room with low ceilings. I mean, how do you measure the sound first off to even warn people and never mind we have a band that's the guy was following the rules doing a concert in europe at an outdoor show with about seventy thousand people and in the last song the whole crowd started singing and went over 110 db and he got a fine because they're measuring volume they don't know who it's coming from he didn't turn it up so there, there's got to be better ways than that in my opinion I think that, you know, we have to find ways to measure and then warn the crowd. It's time to put something in your ears if you care about your hearing. Forcing it, I know that's what makes change happen more, uh, but I, I'm a pro-choice person. And I think in this country, especially where we don't like to be regulated, I see backlash with regulation. Where in Europe, they're used to it. There's a lot of regulation there. It's kind of like California. So... <laughs> They're used to being regulated, but the rest of the country here, I don't think is. Be nice to find a right way to measure and then warn people to put something in their ears when it's time. Uh, this is an art form. This is not a job. I'm all for protecting people working. And all the people that are ushers and crew people that work for the venue should be protected by OSHA and everybody else. But if you're an audience member, this is a pleasure activity. This is art. You can't tell people how to listen to their art or how loud they can have their art. I just think that's a mistake. Um, that's just my personal opinion. Well, and, and I would add to that, in my personal opinion, um, my way of uh, introducing these ideas, again, is not so much um, promoting regulation of any kind in any industry, but showing people by providing to them either as a free service 
or to your friends or to whomever associates um, the opportunity to have hearing protection and maybe to provide that through a grant um, to persons at concert venues and to create the environment that this is a healthful thing. It's just what you would do for sun protection maybe or for your, your vegan diet or whatever you choose to do for a healthful fitness routine. Um, and, you know, I, I, I agree with you, Michael. I think there's a way that has to be promoted uh, out there to get people to accept us as the way things should be because it ultimately affects their appreciation of the art that they so desire to listen to. And I, I'm, I'm the poster child for that. I can tell you, again, I'm sitting here now listening to the ringing in my ears and there is no amount of money I can spend on a sound system that is ever going to be able to get rid of that. And, um, you know, as much as my neighbors, you know, send me text messages, can you please turn it down? Um, I, I still am not able to hear the subtle differences that I should be able to at this age. You know, Michael, um, you had mentioned in a meeting that we had recently about, you know, is it necessary to have hearing loss as an an older adult, whatever that definition is. Um, could you comment on that? That is hearing loss necessary in older oh, age? Yeah, and I think that that's been a big, even among physicians, they'll say, oh, it's age related. So it makes everybody think, oh, it's because they're old, they have hearing loss. No, not because they're old. Maybe because you have, there's five things I believe that cause hearing loss. Loud sound in this country is definitely the number one cause of hearing loss. Also, you can get disease, like we talked about the virus, or you have an autoimmune disease or something. Those are fairly more rare than that. You can inherit it. It's a genetic thing. Uh, you can get an injury, a head trauma or something that might cause some hearing loss. And then you could have a poor vascular system. You have heart disease, diabetes, and smoke tobacco. That'll affect your hearing and actually has a doubling effect when you injure yourself because your ear needs blood supply to heal itself after the injury. That's why that ringing gets better or the hearing loss that you noticed after the show doesn't comes back. Now your hearing's coming back. That's through nutrition, through the blood. And while you have a vascular restrictive activity, that's gonna cause some hearing loss. Age is not one of those causes. Now, if you have one of those five or a couple of them, yeah, when you get older, you're gonna see a lot more hearing loss. But I've tested people in their eighties who have perfect hearing. So for everybody out there that wants to hear, and especially if you're as musicians listening to this, this is something that you can keep those money makers intact. It's not an obvious and inevitable conclusion to being a musician and enjoying loud sound. Uh, and the other thing I want to mention about the loud sound enjoyment and hearing protection is that, yes, if you put in a foam muffled earplug and it sounds, everything sounds dull, and no detail yes it's it's taking away the enjoyment of the show and in fact you know back in the 90s when we started making hearing protection for musicians we had to realize that we wanted to protect but we couldn't take away the enjoyment of playing so there are products out there that don't sound exactly the same but they sound darn close so it's not like you're losing the fun of it um, and I think the other thing is that the rest of us in medical field have to realize that because of the emotion 
loud sound brings. It's an emotional thing. I mean, Howard, you went to shows for that. I too, I would go see Led Zeppelin and run to the front and stand in front of the boxes before they even flew the PA and walk out of there with screaming ears when I was, you know, in my late teens and early twenties, it was, it was the same experience. Uh, but now with these newer earplugs and now there's even better things coming out, I can't tell you about them because my company's developing a couple of them, but they're really consumer-based uh, products that'll help you listen actively with all these ear things coming out. You see all these different over-the-counter hearing aids Well, there's going to be other things that'll that'll help people hear better and protect. And, and I encourage everybody to start looking into that stuff because it's it's really fairly high quality sound compared to what you usually jam into your head. I have another question because you kind of touched upon it. Um, when, when we're talking about health and hearing loss, how much in this country do you attribute our poor health due to our poor cardiovascular systems on, on a whole, when in conjunction with uh, loud noise induced hearing loss, how much do both of these factors play into how our hearing loss is affected in the US? I, I think it's a significant uh, amount. Um, just as Michael touched on with nicotine and, and tobacco consumption, anytime you decrease the blood supply to an end organ, whether it's your heart, whether it's your lung, whether it's your stomach, you run the risk of what's called um, which is a low blood flow, which if you're consuming something that's causing low blood flow, you're going to injure that end organ. And so I think, as Michael also said, you know, the hearing loss is multifactorial, meaning there's medical problems, there's genetic problems, there's noise-induced problems. And so when you collectively put all those together, um, you can have a significant hearing loss. And so if you can, why not minimize at least one of them? Yeah, I'm for that's. I agree with that totally. Um, you just have to protect any way you can. And I think that the real medical issue that we're finding now, uh, which makes total sense, but if you want to get on a search engine and just, just look up early cognitive decline, early dementia and hearing loss. So, you know, we want you to keep your hearing healthy to communicate and obviously enjoy music and enjoy life. And those are all important things. Uh, but there is a very high correlation with early dementia and hearing loss. You know, your brain is what you hear with. It's what you see with. It's what you taste with. It's always in the brain, right? If I have a perfect ear and I cut the nerve that connects it to your brain, you're, you're not hearing. So your brain is is really what you hear with. Uh, in the in the film, um, in the film uh, Sound of Metal, uh, there's a range of emotions that Ruben goes through uh, during the process that we see in the film of injury. Um, some of which are like anger and denial, and then eventually sort of uh, acceptance once he joins this community. Um, do these also occur if for folks that are experiencing their loss uh, or injury uh, in a more gradual manner? I I haven't seen it. it. It absolutely plays with emotions, right? I mean, I depends what you're doing. I get a sound engineer who records, who comes in with bad hearing suddenly, 
or realizes that somebody's telling him that their sounds are not that they sound very bright. And so because they're really cranking up the high end. And so they come in and I test their hearing and show them the facts that, yes, you have a really bad hearing in the highs from all the years of destroying your ears. It gets emotional. It definitely gets emotional. They're not in denial. They already get it. I don't think the denial is there. It's 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 depression. A lot of times I don't get the anger and the denial much here. I think once they're here, they see now I've had some people deny that they think they have wax in their ear and I tell them they don't. And I have to pull a camera up to show them that they don't. But I mean, that's not the same thing. This is, you know, uh, yeah, I don't see that. It's not the same issue. It's it's the emotion there is loss of ability to do your best as a musician, right? You're standing in front of a bunch of people. I've got guys that have A-listers that have been here. Remember my clinic, I see everybody, local Chicago musicians. I see musicians from symphonies. I see metal bands from Finland. I see everybody in this clinic. And uh, there's a common theme of people being exposed to loud sound, losing their hearing and having the emotions that go with that of incompetency right now how good am i playing if i stand in front of the group and it sounds okay to me but if my hearing is that bad does it sound good to them and how am i doing uh i work with symphony players and i have a new device that's actually kind of a the first tunable earplug it's electronic and you can it's full bandwidth and you can tune it the way you want and they need hearing protection in orchestras now, believe it or not. It's just not metal music. There's actually orchestra members losing hearing, and especially in pit orchestras. Uh, and so what this device does is allow you to turn things down uh, and EQ what you need to hear in your ears to make things sound more equal. So let's also talk a little bit about um, some of the longer term mental health uh, implications. Now, uh, I want to involve I want to involve you, uh, Howard. So uh, hearing loss isn't just an incompetency. It doesn't doesn't just come as something that uh, you lose and then you feel uh, as though you lose your kind of sense of purpose because you can't play. But there's also implications on your family and uh, in kind of how involved in the world you become and that could lead to uh dementia howard do you want to chime in on this a little bit yeah i, I can just um, add a little bit um to what uh, michael was saying um and that you know maybe that you're a musician and you have hearing loss or tinnitus and that can significantly affect how you interact with the crowd but i would also say that you know i get a significant number of patients who you know, they come in in tears and they know they're losing their hearing. They have tinnitus. They can't sleep at night. They're waking up with tinnitus and the emotional toll from that is great. You add that emotional toll on top of an ongoing pandemic and that's a perfect storm for a lot of issues, a lot of really significant issues in mental health. And um, just to add as a side discussion, I think we're going to see a lot of fallout from the pandemic and a lot of it is going to be related to hearing loss of people who could, as Michael said, deny that for so long. And now that they realize they have hearing loss and tinnitus on top of 
the social distancing and social isolation and not being able to go to their favorite show anymore, <laughs> um, you know, I think it's going to, it's really going to come to the fore. And let me add to that, these, these older musicians like myself that come in here with the bad hearing will tell me, listen, I, I've done the song a thousand, two thousand times. I can play it by muscle memory, but I can't hear enough to really stretch it. So really, they're just going, they know the rhythm, they know what the song is, and they're really blindly playing through it, almost ear blind playing through it because their hearing isn't good enough. And these are emotional things. This is, people come in here crying at the symphonies, we have them tuned. I was talking about that one with the active mics. They can protect their hearing, but they can also correct their hearing loss because it's an analog piece that you can turn things up. And when I do symphony demos, I usually get three or four people that start weeping during the demo because suddenly they can hear their instrument better. Remember in the classical world, Dave, somebody's after your job every day. You, they Everybody's trying to get into that symphony. So when your skills go down, whether it's from your hearing or something else, you start losing, threatening to lose your job. And I see these people getting scared of losing their job and suddenly they can correct their hearing loss. And of course it's all done on their own phone with an app. So management can't tell whether or not they have bad hearing. And they get emotional. They start crying about the fact that they can hear notes that they haven't heard again. So yes, it is emotional. I know we've been talking a lot about live music and we've only briefly touched on um, companies who make music listening devices briefly. And both of you have taken the stance where you said it's not really um, a, a legislation issue. You don't want to issue regulation. Against uh, different on the devices. Different okay, than concerts. So. I think the devices are, again, they're not forcing it on devices. They were going to force it on venues. Devices, they're saying, here's a warning. Doesn't mm -hmm. say, we're not letting you get any louder than this. It's saying, here's the warning, you're too loud. You can set a parental control, right, which is good. Because every mm -hmm. kid, you know, you get a six-year-old, he puts on anything, or gaming or whatever, they turn it to 10. they just natural. I don't know why. They just all just turn it all the way up. And that's what they think they're supposed to do. So if you can put a parental control and never gets over 80 dB, then great. And that's what they ask people to do. So you have a choice of parental control or a warning, but it doesn't make mm -hmm. you do anything. The venues are trying to make it so that you can't be over a certain level or else the band or venue gets a fine. And right. so I, that's a different thing. So where then as, um, where, where do we put companies who make these listening devices? Uh, there should be parameters, obviously. Um, and that's what we no did. We passed, World Health passed a document with people from ISO, from Cinelac, from ANSI, from all the standards organizations, and also ITU, and also experts like myself and university experts on hearing loss prevention. And the manufacturers, Apple and Bose and Sony and Apple, they were at all meetings. And we're working together to find ways that they can do it without taking money out of their pocket. They don't want people not to use their device because it's not fun anymore. And we were conscious of that. So we gave them opportunities to join in. And it went for five years. I'm, I'm sorry, three years of us meeting a million times. And finally, in 2018, we came to a consensus of this is what we're willing to do, everybody. And so I'm hoping the loud sound at venues goes the same route, but for some reason they want public policy involved with the live shows. And I don't get the difference, but I don't run the world health. I'm just <laughs> grateful to be there. So how do we train society 
to not needing to listen to such extreme volumes on their personal devices, since there doesn't seem to be uh, a giant step forward in reducing the max volume you can listen to on these devices. Well, because they're starting to tell you, right, information. I think a lot of people don't know what too loud is. They don't know what what too loud to injure yourself is, right? Everybody's is a different perception of what's too loud. I know there's people in metal because I go to, I mean, I've worked with everybody and you go to metal shows and it's blazing loud and they go, we aren't that loud tonight. And, you know, then you go to another show where they're not that bad and they think they're blowing it out of the stadium. So I think type of music sometimes tells, but there's no way you have a sound level meter in your head. So when you've got a device like an Apple phone or whatever, and it starts telling you, oh, you're listening too loud. Now you start getting a reference. Oh, I can't listen louder than that. And then you show up at the show and it's 10 times louder. You're like, hmm, my phone says that's too loud. Now it's telling me it's too loud here. I should put in hearing protection. So awareness is a big part of it. And I think that World Health is doing a fantastic job creating awareness around the world for all these different things. But uh, that's where it starts is, uh, is awareness. And then having quality products that make it enjoyable still. You know, you can protect yourself, but if it's no fun to go, then what's the use, right? So you've got to be conscious of the fact that people want to feel that low end. If they're at some some EDM club or at the metal show, they just want to hear those guitars like power, right? You can still feel it with some devices without hurting yourself. But I think the secret is awareness, education, and good good alternatives to losing your hearing without taking the enjoyment away. If I could just interject something really quick, you know, for a better speech and hearing month um, at the medical facility where I work, um, we set up a device. Um, her name is Earlene. I can send you an image of that if you'd like, um, where we um, have a microphone inside a mannequin's ear and we have people come down and um, give them an, I, uh, an iPod or any of the MP3 assistive listening devices. And we tell them, put this in both of your ears and put it up to the level that you like to routinely listen to music. And then we put it into the ear of the mannequin, which then measures the decibel level that they're listening to. And easily 70, 80% of the people, 125 people maybe in a building, they're listening to a sound level at something way greater than they ever should be. And they did not know that. And they, when they see that, on a decibel meter, it brings awareness to the fact that they could have a hearing loss. And then we ask them as part of that questionnaire, do you believe or does your spouse or significant other uh, believe that you have a hearing loss? And probably half of those people then say yes. And then we say, we will now give you a free audiogram, a hearing test. And we screen those people and they have significant hearing loss. And that reinforces the idea that they have been listening to music for too long at too loud and they need to change that behavior. And I, you know, I think the awareness part is just critical. It's really critical. Um, and, you know, to Sam's question, how do you do that? You know, um, both Sam, me and, you know, Alexi have been to local venues and listened to a lot of loud music. Um, and we, we know how much we enjoy that, <laughs> you know, but I think there's ways of protecting your hearing and, when it becomes something that becomes the norm um, um, to protect your hearing and to have any, I think 
become more wet and see more of that in the future. From the musician standpoint, you know, how do you protect yourself? I don't know how many musicians are listening to this podcast, but uh, I know a couple of them that are on it. So, uh, you know, if you're listening to to things loud, how do you protect yourself? Well, they they claim in ear monitors, right? That's the big thing. Everybody goes, put it in ear monitors, this thing you see in their ears with the wires. The thing is that most musicians turn those up exactly to the same level as their floor monitors. So those are protective devices if you actively take your time turning them down to the right level. Nobody knows what that is. It's the same thing with the audience. Nobody really knows what safe doesn't sound too loud to me. You know, and it's music. It's enjoyable loud. Nobody turns their jackhammer up louder, right? They don't want their 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 chainsaw to get louder because it's cool. No, they but go ahead and turn up that bass at a show and get some good guitar sounds, and it feels good and it sounds good. So, you know, you have to be conscious of not taking that away, but giving somebody the ability to know when it's too loud, and then giving them an alternative that doesn't compromise it too much to keep their hearing intact. In, uh, in The Sound of Metal, uh, there's a, a point where Ruben is then taken to a deaf uh, community. I feel as though this could be kind of a, a good sort of closing point in light of uh, our, you know, what we were just talking about with, uh, with advocacy. Um, the film communicates that uh, this group uh, that Ruben goes to is sort of away from society and they're kind of, uh, they're on their own and you uh, by the end of the of his interaction with that group, you get the feeling in a certain way that there's uh, they're desiring to be alone. They don't want Ruben there when he gets the cochlear implants anymore. Um, and I wanted to know a little bit about because uh, this was the first time I was kind of aware of the this community being in a certain way or people wanting to be a part of uh, to be in their own community in some way. Uh, can you, uh, can as maybe starting with you, Howard, do you want to talk a little bit about uh, how these communities are perceived and why that may be the case that they would want to be uh, separate? Well, I, I yes, I, I can comment on that. You know, first of all, I, I think it's great that you were able to see that in that film because I think many people um, will not necessarily pick up on that issue. And that issue is, that the deaf culture does not see themselves as um, handicapped. They don't see um, themselves as something other than um, not being enabled. And they oftentimes don't want to be part of the, the hearing culture. And, you know, for the longest time, they were seen as handicapped and they need to be part of our, our culture or where they used to be if, in fact, they lost their hearing, you know, later on in life. Um, and um, I, I think I think the awareness now is that um, they they do have their own culture and they are successful in what they do and they should be able to be um, participatory in that. Um, there is a school for the deaf um, that I participated in in Jacksonville, uh, Illinois, um, as part of an otolaryngology um, stint that I did for a week. And talk about an eye opener. I mean, I saw families, I saw young adults, I saw older people who were there funded by the state of Illinois. Um, and it's a school for the deaf. And, you know, I felt for the first two or three days as an outsider in that community till I then really began to be sensitized to and understand their issues and um, had conversations 
um, with many of them um, and felt, gee, as an otolaryngologist, why don't I know American Sign Language? Why am I not able to communicate with these people? And um, they have a lot to offer, and I think they have a lot to offer to us um, in a perspective that they're not handicapped and that they, if they want to be part of their own culture and, and, and be that way, that, that's a great thing. And I think, like you say, that film really brought that to the fore. I think that, you know, I agree with Howard 100%. They have their own cultural value. And when you get cochlear implants, that is to some of them, not all, it's controversial right now. It's some, some people in the deaf community really reject you for cochlear implants because now you're saying, oh, I wasn't good enough without my hearing. I got to get hearing to be better than I am now. And that's insulting to a lot of them. And they just feel you're not on our team anymore. And uh, there is some of that. But on the other hand, there's others that believe anything I should do. If I need to read lips, I don't need to use sign language. The world doesn't use sign language. The world talks to me and the world isn't going to try and adjust to my sign language. So some people believe just the opposite. I need to sign, but I also need to learn to read lips and I need to use as much hearing as I can get into my head. So there's Different, different aspects of it. I think some of it has to do with people that are born deaf and come from families of deaf parents, as opposed to those that became deaf or the first deaf person in their family. So there's so many complicated things, but there is definitely emotion with it. And uh, there is some controversy there. What I found interesting about the cochlear implants because I hear all these musicians, they can be, well, I don't care if I lose my hearing, I'm just going to get cochlear implants. And I go, there, there you go. Now you get to see what a cochlear implant is. They, they dig into your skull with something and they're planted in your head and they sound so digital. The digitized sound was so well done, as well as the muffled hearing. When he was losing his hearing, the audio was great. And in fact, back to that movie, when he first started losing his hearing, he's driving in a bus and the bus is going away and he and his girlfriend are having a conversation on this passenger bus. And I couldn't understand what they were saying. I'm like, the bus in traffic, somebody did a really bad job of sound on this movie. And then I realized that's when his hearing loss was kicking in and they were showing us what he was hearing. Uh, they didn't really allude to it then, but that's what I got it. And whoever did the audio on that film really did a great job of depicting what it's like to lose hearing and different degrees of it. Right. And I, I would just also add that, you know, many people believe, you know, in the technological God that has provided us with so many different advances of which this podcast and this Zoom video that we're now doing is part of that. But the uh, cochlear implant does not restore your hearing back to normal. Um, it does not give you the hearing that you had when you were 25 before your noise exposure or your uh, viral infection or your meningitis or whatever. Um, and one thing that I fear is that people will believe in the technological advance to restore them back to normalcy, to put them back exactly the way they were before they lost their hearing. And in the present technology, maybe in five lifetimes beyond mine, we'll have that, but we don't have that now. And, and I think that it's erroneous to think that, and people may perceive that as a crutch and the reason why, and the justification why I can be noise exposed now, I'll just get a cochlear implant. There is that part. The second part of that is who's gonna pay for that? You know, insurance companies do not pay for 
um, cochlear implants, you know, on the fly. I mean, you, you really have to justify why you need that. Um, and I mean, I've fought tooth and nail with many insurance companies to get the care for people that already have a cochlear implant. They don't want to provide the follow-up for that years and years down the road. So I think people also need to be aware that, um, you know, there may be insurance issues, you know, in the future when they have a cochlear implant. And since we're talking about cochlear implants, we might as well bring up the regrowing hair cells, which you kind of keep hearing about by these musicians will come in, my clients, my patients will come in and say, well, I heard they're starting to regrow nerve cells in the ear. And I'm like, you know, I don't know that much about, about that kind of thing, but I do know that most of the things that we've been able to clone are tissue related, like a heart or a lung or nerve cells are a little bit different, I think, to try and, and if even if you can grow them, each cell body has a million neural connections. I'm not sure you're going to be able to get all those back again. And we don't know what the hearing looks like. You might be able to hear a tone in a normal sense, but it may sound very distorted or we don't even know what the sound quality would be if they can finally regrow hair cells. So that's a lot of ifs to try and count on. I'll just ruin my hearing and worry about it later. There, there's probably not a lot that's going to be available to restore hearing in the very near future for sure. Do you have any uh, any closing thoughts for our uh, for our audience here? Maybe starting with you, Michael. If you go to a lot of shows or if you're in a band, make it a point to go see an audiologist that understands music and how it's related to hearing. Get a hearing test, especially musicians. Get a baseline test and form a relationship with an audiologist like you do with a dentist. Something you do regularly because your ears have to be kept in shape. Uh, regular hearing tests are the cornerstone of any hearing loss prevention program. You won't know if your hearing's changing unless you get a baseline and annual test, no matter if you're wearing plugs or not. So I encourage you to wear hearing protection, but also I encourage you to go see an audiologist and get your ears checked. First of all, thank you very much for having this um, this podcast. You know, I, I think you know um, my interest in this um, and how I think it's just so important for overall health. Um, to what Michael just said, I think you should also, if you have questions about your hearing, to go see an ear, nose, and throat doctor. Um, we're here to work with audiologists um, to kind of approach the medical end of things. But clearly, it's a team approach. You know, it's not just me taking care of patients and sending them out the door and, well, go get musicians' earplugs. You know, we, we work with qualified audiologists who are the forerunners in this field, and Michael Santucci here in Chicago is one of those people who I've had the pleasure of working with. Um, but, you know, as I said earlier, you know, Sam and myself and you, Alexi, have been to enough shows, then I think, you know, it's really a forward-thinking thing for you, too, to get the musicians earplugs that you did recently, and I'm really happy that you did that and got the baseline audiogram um, and I would encourage more people to do that. I mean, it's as much as going to the dentist as it is to go to the audiologist if you're going to expose yourself to these things. So thanks again. And I just want one, one more thing too. I, I want to thank you, but I want to thank Howard for bringing this together because he's really the one that put this together. His love of metal music and his concern about hearing loss really put this whole thing together. So I want to tip my hat to my favorite ear, nose and throat doctor. 
Yeah, absolutely. And thank you uh, to both of you for uh, bringing a, a lot of these things sort of uh, to light for us. And also for our audience, as live shows start coming about and you consider uh, re-entering concerts and things like that, uh, this would be a, a pretty good time to see some of these uh, great folks that work in Chicago or uh, wherever you may live. So uh, thank you, Michael. Thank you, Howard. Uh, we look forward to seeing you uh, to seeing you in the flesh very soon. Take care, you too. Thanks. Thanks again.